God is a great guy, and he's here to preach for us. Uh, let's give him those warm New City welcomes. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, greetings, New City. Great, uh, yeah, great being with you. Do bring you greetings from uh, Grace Church over in La Mesa, and I'm delighted to be here with you. Really, I've been looking forward to it. I have, I've known your pastors in particular for some time, and I actually know the the Ericsons and the Moors as well. Um, but I really enjoy seeing your pastors and, and getting to know them. I get uh, have been over the years seen Kenny at uh, at Bethel Seminary. I'm working there, and he might be studying there, and he's always so joyful, you know, just this joyful, joyful guy. And then Vince, like Joanna was saying, Vince and I have served on a small board together, and I just love that guy. I, I remember the, um, the first time he just gave me one of those big Vince hugs and said, I love you, man. And, you know, it's, it's just stuck stuck out to me that here's this guy, neat guy, just so affectionate and able to say, hey, I love you in the Lord. I have this brotherly love for you. And I realize I don't say that very much to people. And I've really appreciated Vince's example to me and his care and personal care. And so I'm delighted to be here with you. I commend them to you, obviously. I'm glad they got away to be refreshed. And I'm delighted to be here with you. Well, they asked me to um, to do a message from Genesis chapter 16. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. I'll read verses to you if you don't have one. But if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 16. It's the first book of the Bible if you're newer to the Bible, so it's easy to find. We had been preaching through part of Genesis in East County there in La Mesa. And, and Kenny thought this might be a helpful message for you as well. Genesis chapter 16. I, I dream to be someday a, a DIY kind of person. Kind of like Finn is. You know, a, 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 handy, a handy person. A do-it-yourselfer. You know what I mean? Occasionally, I will go to the Home Depot to try to do a home project. And I, I just feel good about myself at Home Depot. I walk the aisles with a certain sense of I, I can do things on my own. I can, I can fix things in my house. I can be a DIY kind of person. So I was there not too long ago because I want to do a little project on our back patio, and I felt good about myself, went to Home Depot, got some stuff, loaded it in my car, went home, started the project, realized I'm doing this wrongly. I had to undo what I had done, go back to Home Depot, get other stuff, and try to redo my DIY project. Someday I want to be a do-it-yourselfer. When you go through trials, when you go through difficulties, when you go through disappointments, are you a DIY kind of person? When, it, when suffering hits, unexplained circumstances hit, perplexing situations? Are you a do-it-yourselfer, a spiritual do-it-yourselfer in those times? I can do that. And it doesn't go so well for me. Can, can you relate? 
in this passage, we're, we're presented with a kind of contrast between the human, let's call it DIY approach to those kinds of situations and the reality of who God is like for us in those situations. So think about a contrast with me. The contrast between the human, human inability, let's call it, and the divine reality that you and I need. Let's see both sides of this contrast. Let's call the first side the unbelief of merely human solutions. The unbelief of, of merely human, merely human solutions. And I say merely because, yes, we're involved in solutions. God uses us to uh, solve certain problems. But the merely human is a problem like we find in this passage. You see, the background here is that God has promised this guy named Abram, later Abraham, a land and a people, and then through him, blessing to all peoples of the earth. Don't try this at home. <laughs> major promises. These are major promises that structure your Bible. His descendants will, will inherit a land, this promised land. They'll be made into a nation, and through them will come blessing to all nations of the earth. Great promises, but they're still waiting. They've been journeying now 10 years in this promised land. And still no kids. They're supposed to become a nation. Not a single child yet. It's been 10 years. And the waiting starts to get to Abraham's wife, Sarai, or Sarah. Look at verse 1. Now, Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Sarai, or Sarah, Later on, she says, let's employ the, the custom of our day to solve this problem. Abraham, conceive a child with my maidservant Hagar, uh, Hagar, rather, Hagar, and her children will in effect be counted as my children. That was the custom of the day at times, but it doesn't mean that God endorses this practice. God's design in Genesis 2 is one man and one woman together as one flesh in marriage. And deviations from that design, let's just say they don't turn out well in Scripture. In fact, God here indicates his, his lack of approval in this passage with an ominous echo of Eden and what happened there in Genesis chapter 3. Abraham listens to his wife in verse 2, which, by the way, husbands, we should do. So don't take this the wrong way. That's needful husband, husbands. But in this scene, Abraham listening to Sarah is this deliberate echo of that disastrous fall into sin. You see, in Genesis 3, Eve took and gave, took and gave the forbidden fruit to Adam. And here you see an echo of that. Look at verse 3 with me. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, this promised land, Sarai, Abram's wife, took, she took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Did you hear the echo from Genesis 3? Eve 
took and gave the fruit to Adam. And here Sarai takes and gives Hagar to Abraham. Here's an echo of that disastrous fall into sin. In other words, in God's eyes, friends, in God's eyes, this merely human solution it's a form of unbelief. It's embracing merely human ways and merely human solutions instead of God's ways and God's solutions. And friends, can't we rerun this own scene in our lives as well? Can we just pause and make some connections with this? Can't we pursue merely human ways or mere human solutions to our problems? You think about how this can happen, this kind of unbelief sometimes in marriage, in marriages. There are biblical reasons for a divorce, namely adultery and abandonment, but so often I've seen couples in unbelief just kind of throw up their hands and say, you know, we just fell out of love, or he's not meeting my needs, or she's not meeting my needs, and they pursue this merely human solution of a divorce in that form. Or it can be the unbelief in a desire to be married. If you're single here, I'm not saying singleness is a problem to overcome. I'm not saying that. But our mere human solution to that good desire to be married, if God's given you that desire, sometimes can be, well, can just be sexual relations outside of God's good design. We pursue the hookup culture. It can be marrying someone who does not know Christ or taking refuge in pornography. Or it can be unbelief in parenting, merely human solutions in parenting if you're a parent. It's a merely human solution that I can relate to of I've got to change my child in my own strength, in my own power. And the result is anger, impatience. Or on the flip side, the unbelief that says, doesn't matter what I do, not going to help my child at all. Or it can be unbelief in your schooling if you're a student here. Mere, a mere human solution in your schooling. It might be... You're taking this exam, you're studying for this exam, and you feel like your entire future rests on you alone. <laughs> your GPA or your score on the ACT or the SAT or whatever determines your future instead of God. Friends, we can rerun these human solutions, merely human solutions. Maybe even, even more importantly, the Apostle Paul cites this situation with Hagar as an example of unbelieving religion in Galatians chapter 3. He says this scene we've seen here, this unusual scene, it's, it's analogous to trying to earn or achieve our salvation, our standing before God instead of trusting his promise in Christ, instead of relying on his grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone. So this unbelief, it plays out in many ways, and like we've said, they don't turn out well. Certainly not here. Look at verse 4. Pick it back up in verse 4. And when she, Sarah, saw that she, Hagar, had conceived. I'm sorry, I think that's the reverse. <laughs> when she saw that she had conceived, she, Hagar, 
looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarah. Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarah. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she, Hagar, fled from her. Hagar's social status would, would change with her pregnancy. And so she looked down. She looked with contempt on Sarah or Sarai. And, and Sarah blames Abram, doesn't she? And then Abraham washes his hands of the whole situation. Do whatever you want, honey. <laughs> and that's the DIY approach. The unbelief, friends, of merely human solutions to our problem and pain. And this sets the stage. This sets the stage, provides the backdrop for what we learn about God today. So see, secondly, see the other side of the contrast. Secondly, the reality of God's constancy the backdrop of this human mess. Oh, friends, see, the, see this beautiful picture of God's constant care. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and, and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So catch this. Hagar is about to be a single mom caring for her child out in the wilderness. No one to help her. And she thinks no one to care about her. She feels alone, abused, abandoned. Then she finds she's not alone. This individual is there who finds her. And do you see? He knows her by name. Hagar. Servant of Sarai. That's not all he knows. Look at verse 9. He knows a lot more. He knows about the future. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit there. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Catch that, friends. The Lord has listened to your affliction or your oppression. Verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. This angel, this, this messenger of God is essentially saying, God can take this mess and work through it, honey. Verse 10, your son's offspring will be multiplied so it can't be numbered, just like God had promised to Abraham. Verse 11, call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears because God has listened to your affliction. God has seen your oppression. Verse 12, he's going to roam freely. Yes, there's going to be conflict. But he will roam freely as Hagar longs to do. Now, you should ask yourself, how could this stranger know all about that? 
I'm sure that's what Hagar was wondering, right? How do you know all that? Well, the mystery is resolved in verse 13. She realizes what's going on. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a daughter of Sceva. Don't you love that? You, whoa, you are a daughter of Sceva. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks Now we're told that this angel, this messenger, is, is in effect representing the Lord himself, Yahweh, this personal name for God, the name by which he reveals himself to Moses. I am who I am. I just exist, Moses. The identity of this messenger right here as she describes it. Maybe it's a pre-incarnate vi uh, visitation of the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. Maybe... It's an angel so commissioned to speak directly for God that Hagar makes the connection regardless. She gives God himself a name. She gives God a name. You're the God of Sceva. And the seeing here is not just like you're aware, like you saw, but you see and you care. Did you see that? You're looking after him. He sees you. looking after you. And certainly here's a glorious picture of God's heart for the nations, right? Here's a glorious picture of God's heart for the nations. The God of Abraham was there for this Egyptian woman. He's going to be there for her son, Ishmael. It's a great picture of God's heart for the nations. But I want to really center in on what Hagar calls God himself here. I think that's the heart of the passage. Think about what this should mean for you and me. And, and the way to do that is, first, think about what this may have meant to the first readers of this. You want to put yourself in their shoes here. The, the first readers were people, Moses is writing to, who, whose moms and dads have been delivered out of Egypt and slavery, and they've been wandering around the wilderness, and they're about to head into that promised land. That's those for whom this is first written. So you ask yourself, how would this strange scene in Genesis 16, how would it have helped them, those people? Well, I think it would have been a lens for them to interpret the past and a lens for them to rightly understand the present so that they could trust God for the future. He's the God of Sceva. And I think that's what the effect should be for you and me. A lens by which you interpret your past. And a lens by which you understand your present. And a way to trust God for the future. You see this word that uh, the angel used in verse 11. Look back to verse 11. The Lord has listened to your affliction the Lord has noticed your oppression. It's the same way Moses will describe Israel in Egypt, in Exodus 3, in Exodus 4, that God listened to their affliction, God saw their oppression. So 
these first readers would have realized their, their moms and dads had been delivered from their affliction because the God of seeing cared about them. He would have interpreted their past. The God of seeing was there in our people's past. That means the God of seeing is with us right now. And the God who sees us will be with us going forward. Do you see how this could help you and me? The lens to realize God was there in your past. And God is there with you right now in the present. And you can trust God for your future. Maybe there's some time in your past when you felt abandoned. And you look back on maybe some hard things and there might be some some awful things that have happened to you. And I'm, I'm very sorry if that's the case. Some situation in your past that you, you just don't know how to interpret. And I don't have all the answers. But I think this passage is saying the God of seeing knows you, was there looking after you, and he's still there with you. I don't know what you're going through in the present. I, I have no idea. I, I only know what you're going through now. I don't know what you're going through in the future. I'm sure there are hard situations in which you're in. And I think this passage would be a lens for you to say like Hagar says, the God of seeing sees me right now. He cares about me right now. He's looking after me. I don't know what you're facing for the future. But if the God of seeing sees you now and cares about you now, you can trust that See, the battle here, friends, the battle here is to look at these things with faith toward God and his care instead of the unbelief of mere human solutions. That's the battle, you see. Will I interpret them with faith in light of the God whose constant care is mine in Christ? Or will I have a kind of, kind of functional atheism believe God is near as well as away. Where are you in that interpreting? I don't mean a true atheist at all. I don't mean that necessarily. But one that's kind of denying that God is near or that he really cares. R Richard Dawkins is a true atheist today. He has written the following. He said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason nor any justice. That's, that's the atheistic perspective, right? The God-denying perspective. Just blind physical forces in charge. And maybe you feel like that. just feels like blind physical forces are in charge. What's possible? Because God wants to help you. Maybe you're here and your heart, your heart is starting to recite the, what Chad Bird calls the, the inverse of Psalm 23. The inverse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, but I still want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. But the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. He leads me beside still waters, but I know of better places where I'd like to get my fill. Can you relate to that? That's that battle, isn't it? Will I trust God's constant care? Or will I pursue some mere human solution and deny his care? Where's the battle for you right now? Hagar wants to help you think about past, present, and future in light of the God who is the God of seasons. And the proof of that, the proof of that is another angelic birth announcement in Luke chapter 1. When an angel shows up to a young woman named Mary and says, guess what? You're going to have a baby and you're going to call him Jesus. That promised blessing for the nations that we talked about, that promised savior for the nations has come. You see, the biggest mess we've made is certainly our sin, is it not? Our rebellion against God, which God in his goodness and God in his justice must, must punish. But Hagar, friends, Hagar here is a compelling picture of God's grace. A picture of the God who entered humanity and pursued us like he pursued Hagar. Not only that, he entered this suffering world and he suffered in our place and he suffered for our sins. He hung in judgment to receive the just judgment of God in our place for all who will believe. And that's the proof, the greatest proof of God's constant care for you if you are in Christ. The proof is found in Jesus, the promised blessing for the nations, the Savior of all who will believe. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I just know that New City is glad you're here. And I, I know you're in the right place. You're in a great place this morning to come. And I just want to pause and say, this good news can be for you, friend. If you turn from going your own way and you, you trust in what Jesus has done for you, his life, death, and resurrection, then you will know this God of seasons. He will take away your sins. They will be on Jesus and not on you. And you will be right with this God who knows you and cares about you. And if you are a Christian, the same response is called for, isn't it? Believe. If you are a Christian here, if you're a believer in Jesus, the same response is, is called for. Believe in, trust in this God of seasons for your life, your past, your present, your future. It's kind of like this. I think the prophet Isaiah captured this really nicely. Isaiah 49 in verse 14. Here it's kind of a, the functional atheism. Isaiah 49 verse 14 says, But Zion said, people of God said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Maybe that's how you feel. God has forgotten me. And then God speaks to bring the reality of his care. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That just doesn't happen. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet God says, I will not forget you. 
if somehow, and I don't think it's even possible, if somehow a, a nursing mom could forget her child, God says, even if that could happen, I will not forget you. He says, behold, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. That's what he must believe this morning. That's what God is saying. Let me quote from J.I. Packer from his classic book, Knowing God. Just take this in in light of that passage. Dr. Packer says, what matters supremely is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the fact that he knows me. Can't say. What matters most, he said, what matters supremely in the last analysis is not that I know God, as important as that is, but that he knows me. He says, I am graven on the palms of his hands, Isaiah 49. I am never out of his mind. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. Listen, he knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment, there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention is distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Do you believe that? <laughs> he says, this is momentous knowledge and unspeakable comfort. This is what God wants to do for you. Momentous knowledge and unspeakable comfort. Knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in the eye and watching over me in the grave. Friends, that's what Hagar experiences in Genesis 16. She's in the wilderness. She's all alone, she thinks. Abused and abandoned, she thinks. But she's not alone. She realizes, God is with me. The God of seeing is looking after me. The call of this passage is believe that for yourself. Interpret your past, present, and future with that lens Recognize the uselessness of mere human solutions and turn away from them and believe this reality that God constantly cares for you and loves you. In fact, a way to help yourself do this might be look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus until you're convinced of this. There was a time earlier in my Christian life when I was really struggling in that battle line between faith and unbelief, and I still can. But the struggle was so acute, I thought I was losing my mind. I'm not kidding you. I thought I was going insane. But God lifted the grace and just said, okay, this isn't going to be good. And what I felt like he led me to do and what he used to help me was through every day, all I did was just read part of the gospel accounts about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I spent a long time just looking at Jesus. That's all I could do. It's all my faith could muster. And over time, God used that to strengthen my faith and convince me of who he is and what he is. So that's one practical step. Look to Jesus until you too are convinced of God's care and that he is with you. He is looking after you right now, expectantly. Father, I don't know the situations in this room. 
do you do? If I don't know the pain from the past, if I don't know the suffering in the present, and I don't know their anxiety about the future, So I pray, Spirit of God, that you would comfort right now, that you direct our hearts and minds upward to use this lens of your constant care that we would realize what Hagar realized. You're the God of seeing. You are looking after us in trouble. For you have entered this world in Jesus to bring us to your throne. So comfort, I pray. Direct our eyes to Jesus and let us leave here with fresh faith.